Well, good morning. Thank you for that response. It's a privilege to be here at Gull Lake. I just wanted to clear a few things up. Thank you very much, Happy. Happy, could you just come up here just one second? I just need you to confirm how hot that is. Very hot. Okay, so you couldn't hold on to that. Yeah, okay, good, thank you. Um, I originally come from Minneapolis. I grew up in a suburb there, and uh, in 1979, I attended the Torchbearer Bible School called Bodenseehof in southern Germany on the Bodensee or Lake Constance, and um, that was a turning point in my life. I went back, I finished college, and in 1984, I was invited to go back as an RA in the dormitory as an intern at the Bible School. And uh, I was intending on staying for six months, and six months has turned out to be 38 years. And so Germany is my home. Uh, that's where I've lived now for the majority of my life. And when you ask me about different movies or characters on TV, I probably won't be familiar with them. So I look, walk, and talk like an American, but inside, it's, it's, uh, I'm somewhere else. My wife, Gabi, was born and raised in Germany. She was made in Germany. And um, we got to know each other at a ski conference that I was leading over uh, New Year's in um, 1989. Gabi came there with her two children. It was two years after her first husband died of brain cancer. She nursed him at home uh, during the last two years of his life, and so she came as a single mom to this conference. And uh, for lack of a better word, I fell in love with this woman. And uh, I knew that she'd been through tragedy and I needed to be careful. And the Lord in his goodness gave all the confirmation I needed and she needed. And six years later in 2004, we got married. We have two children, they're both married. And uh, we just received our first grandchild about three weeks ago. And, and it's a privilege. Uh, for those of you who can remember, I had never been married before I, I, I married God, but I was 43 years old, so it was kind of like marrying Uncle Buck. So it was a lot of comics, it was a lot of things that could be fil filmed, but uh, that's just a part of our story, and God and Gabby have been very gracious with me. I think that's all I'll say right now by word of, of introduction. I'm gonna ask those who are running the technical side of the program this morning to start the PowerPoint. Let me pray and then we'll begin. Father, I wanna thank you that you know us perfectly this morning. I wanna thank you for your presence here, Lord Jesus. And I thank you that you've endowed us with your spirit to understand things that would otherwise remain hidden. And Lord, speak to us, we pray for your own name's sake. Amen. I want to talk about this morning the need to need. Jesus said this to the church at Laodicea in Revelation chapter 3 and verse 14. To the church, to the angel of the church of Laodicea, write the amen, the faithful, the true witness, the beginning of the creation of God says this. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither cold or hot, I will spit you out of my mouth. Because you say I'm rich and become wealthy and have need of nothing, 
and you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may become rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and that the shame of your nakedness would not be revealed and I salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Jesus calls himself here the beginning of the creation of God. Another way of translating that is to say, I am the source of the origin of the creation of God. He's the one who brings it into being. He's the one who makes it. He's the one who creates it. And we need to know this morning that Jesus is the origin of all things spiritual, not me. It's called in scripture the fruit of the spirit, not the fruit of the saint. Christianity is based upon what Christ does, not what Peter Reed does. And anything authentic, anything that will count for eternity, anything that the Father is gonna be pleased with in my life, Christ is gonna have to do it. Because the minute I try and be spiritual, I'm not by virtue of the fact that I tried. Water can't generate its own heat. It has to be penetrated by another source. And so when Happy brought the cup of hot water up here this morning, it didn't generate its own heat. It was just penetrated by another source. That's why it's hot. You see, passion and spiritual authenticity is a byproduct of being penetrated by another source. And it's the result of being rightly related to Jesus. It's a preacher from England, his name is D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, and I brought a quote from him this morning. And he said, we are not to hunger or thirst after blessedness. We are not to hunger or thirst after happiness. But that is what most people are doing. We put happiness and blessedness as the one thing that we desire and thus we miss it. According to the scriptures, happiness is never something that should be sought directly. It is always something that results from seeking something else. And it comes from seeking and knowing and being penetrated by the living Christ in his spirit. And Jesus said, I know your works. You see, if you were to look at this church and this group of Christians, there was a lot growing on, but there was something in the background that was desperately wrong. And we just need to be wise enough to know that motion doesn't necessarily equate progress. And activity is not the last measure of true spirituality because you can have that in place and Jesus says, I'm sick of this. These people were holding to a form of godliness. They were very, very busy and oh, so empty at the same time. And sometimes we're running from the lack of reality and trying to replace it with activity and we're in danger of either burning out or dropping out. 
friend of mine attended a seminary in the United States. If I were to name the name, a lot of you would know it. And during that time, he got to know a, a pastor from Africa who had been sent to this seminary to be trained to go back to his country and lead the church. And at the end of their four years education, my friend asked this humble, godly African brother this. He said, you've been in my country now for four years. Can I ask you honestly, what's impressed you the most? And this godly African pastor, being very humble but very direct, said this. He said, if I were to be honest with you, the thing that has impressed me the most is how much Christians can do without Christ. I've never forgotten that. And I've wondered how much that applies to me. These people said, I have need for nothing, including Jesus. I have become rich and have become wealthy in whatever form that wealth would take. But they said, I don't need anything, including Jesus. You see, there is one person for whom God can do nothing, and that's the, need who, that's the person who needs nothing from God. For, God, for them, God can do nothing. And, and they came to the point where they didn't need Jesus anymore, and they were replacing Jesus with activity. And it's interesting that Jesus begins this passage, and he says, I know your deeds. And then he says, but you don't know that you're poor, wretched, blind, and naked. And I need to be humble enough to know that Jesus knows me better than I know myself. Because the human heart is infected with a disease and it is called self-deception. Our, our hearts are inherently self-deceptive. Paul said in Galatians chapter 6 and verse 3, he who thinks he is something when he is nothing deceives himself. And the essence of self-deception is that you don't know that you don't know. And hence, its cure can sometimes be long and sometimes very messy. And learning to know your need for Jesus. It was very messy for Peter. He said in Mark chapter 14, Lord, if everybody else falls away from you, I won't. And then he went and did the very thing he said he would never do, and that was a turning point in Peter's life. And it's interesting that his commission to full-time ministry didn't come before he made the promise, but after he broke it. In fact, Jesus added to his, his ministry toolbox, and he said, I want you to pastor the sheep right now. You're not only going to be a fisher of men, you're going to be a pastor of the sheep, a shepherd of the sheep, and you're going to be a good one now because you're not going to lord it as a shepherd over the sheep because you've just had a good taste of your own depravity. And it's only that kind of shepherd who is going to have compassion, who is going to be patient and godly with the sheep because they know who they are. I brought a quote this morning 
by a guy named Bill Gilham. Bill Gilham said this. He said, the problem is you don't know what your problem is. You think your problem is the main problem, but that's not the problem at all. The problem is you don't know what your problem is, and that's your main problem. I like that. It is amazing when you know how needy you are for Jesus, and Jesus is pleased to display his activity and sufficiency in your life as you come to him poverty, in poverty as, as a beggar. It's amazing how many of the symptoms in our lives that we're just tinkering with take care of themselves. Because Jesus can move. Jesus says, come and buy from me gold refined by fire. How can you do that? He just said, you're poor, you're wretched, you're blind, you're naked. How can you buy something if you're bankrupt? Well, God said something very interesting to his people in Isaiah chapter 55 and verses one and two. He said, ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and you who have no money, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Come and buy without money and without cost. That doesn't make sense. I have a friend, he works in the design department of Mercedes-Benz in Stuttgart, and he said there are several security doors that he has to go through before he gets to his place of work because he designs new automobiles and they want to keep that a secret from Audi and from Volkswagen. And one day he called me up and he said, Peter, I've got a test car and I need to put a number of kilometers on this thing over the weekend. Could my wife and I drive down and pick you and Gabby up and we can just you know, drive the car? <laughs> I said, does a one-legged duck swim in circles? Of course, get down here. <laughs> and so he drives into our parking lot and, and they don't have a Mercedes star on the front. It's just, it's kind of this black, gray, green color with no you know, paint or anything on it because they want to disguise the car. And so I get in and I'm sitting next to him in, in the driver's seat. I, he was driving, I wasn't allowed to, unfortunately. And, and he pushes this button, my seat starts to massage me. Then he says, look at the GPS screen there, and on my side, I was watching a Bundesliga soccer game, and on his side, he was looking at the map, but there was no split in the screen. It just had to do with the angle at which you look at it. And he said, up there, there are these center sensors, and if my eyes start to close, they beep to wake me up. And I'm going, wow. And then I asked the golden question. I said, how much is a car like this going to cost? And he said, about 165,000 euros. <laughs> I said, I'll never, I'll never own this car. I work for torchbearers. You know, I'll never have enough to acquire a car like that because the more valuable something is, the more you have to give to get it. That's the way that our economy works. The economy of God is tipped outside, upside down. His economy works 
in the opposite direction. And if I come to him and say, I have, he'll say, sorry, I don't accept that currency. If I come to him and say, I need, he says, that's the currency I accept. No, 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 Lord. You don't know how I've come to Gull Lake this week. You don't know what I brought with me. You don't understand what's going on in my marriage and my family and my business and my church and my personal private life that nobody else sees. You don't know. Well, of course he knows. Come bankrupt. Just come bankrupt. It's not what you have that counts before him. It's what you don't have. Because that allows Jesus to work and to supply, to move and to heal and empower. But you gotta have the right currency. You need to come as a beggar. A man by the name of Oswald Chambers, I brought a quote with, him, with me this morning by him. Some of you know the, the devotional book, My Utmost for His Highest. Oswald Chambers uh, studied at St. Andrews University, studied art, art, he founded a Bible school in southern England, and then in the First World War, he went to um, Egypt. He built a tent in the desert, and he and his wife ministered to British soldiers there. And he used to have devotionals for the soldiers in this tent that held over 400 people. And uh, his wife used to take notes of his devotionals both at the Bible school and in the tent in Egypt. And it was her notes that became the basis of that devotional book that we read today, My Utmost for His Highest. He died when he was about 43 years old on the operating table, he had had appendicitis. And he hit the nail on the head when he said, the greatest blessing that God can give to a man is the knowledge of his own destitution. The knowledge of your need for Jesus. Later on in Isaiah chapter 55, uh, God says to his people, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, declares the Lord, for as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. I've seen that verse on greeting cards, on background presentations, on PowerPoints. Uh, I have misused that verse Admittedly, in my life as a Christian, you know, somebody's going through a hard time, I give them Isaiah 55, verses eight and nine. Well, you know, God's thoughts are higher than our thoughts and his ways are higher than our ways, so, you know, be comforted. That is a bad use of that verse because it's taken totally out of context. The context is, come to me without money and buy. Come to me with empty hands. Come to me bankrupt. 
for my ways are higher than your ways and my thoughts are higher than your thoughts. What we don't understand is the grace of God. We do not understand how his economy works. We come on the basis of need, not have. That's why he says, my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways. Jesus said in Matthew 5, verse 3, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And I come to him empty-handed, and God says, great. Because the greater your need, the greater my capacity to meet it. The greater your need, the greater is my capacity to meet it. I don't know what it is, but I continue to go back to the saints who have walked before me to sit at their feet, even if it's through a book. And I continue to come back to people like A.W. Tozer. And I brought a quote with him this morning, and he said this. He said, you remove the Holy Spirit from the New Testament church, 95% of its activity would cease immediately. You remove the Holy Spirit from the church today and 95% of its activity would continue as normal. He said that in the early 1960s. The founder of Torchbearers and through whom God brought the ministry of Torchbearers into being was a man named Major Ian Thomas. And when he said the following sentence the first time, it has haunted me ever since. And the question was simply this. What if Jesus died today? He's not talking about turning back time and and Jesus dying on the cross again. But today, if Jesus were no longer alive and hence no longer alive in me by his spirit, what would change? That question has haunted me ever since I heard it. That would be like asking, what would change if we removed the presence of, light bulb, uh, presence of electricity from those light bulbs shining on me this morning? What would change? Would anything change? Of course it would. Everything would change. But if Jesus died today and was no longer living in me by his spirit, if my, what I call Christian life, would continue as normal, I would suggest to us this morning strongly, it's time to repent. Time to repent of our Christless Christianity, a form of godliness, but no power. A spirituality that is void of reality, but filled with activity. Jesus said, I know your works. Probably makes him tired watching us. 
You see, once our Christianity is reduced to something that is wholly within the realm of human capability, it ceases to be biblical Christianity. Because biblical Christianity from start to finish is a human impossibility. Christianity is based on one thing, Jesus does it, not me. When a person says, I can, that's humanism. When a person says, I must, that's religion. When a person says, I can't, that's Christianity. From start to finish. That is such a blow to our ego that we we just can't accept that. We cannot accept that because our society is based upon what we can achieve. You are something based upon what you can do. God's economy and God's kingdom does not operate on that, that basis. Religion is man's best effort to get to God. Christianity is God's best effort to get to man. Religion, man says, I'll bring the offering. Christianity, God says, I'll bring the offering. And above and beyond that, I am the offering. That's Christianity. And I had to say inside last night when Daniel said, we're not religious here at Gull Lake. We're we're just lovers and followers of Jesus. Jesus said this to close in Revelation chapter three in verse 19. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Therefore be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. When I was in in grade school, we discovered that I have uh, strong allergies and asthma. And I don't know if it was the dust, the dog, uh, pollen, whatever it was, but I was in grade school and I woke up in the middle of the night um, and, and I had such a strong allergic reaction that my eyes had swollen shut. I looked like a boxer who had lost a fight. So I'm this grade school age kid. Mom was a single mom at the time. I kind of feel my way down the hall and, and I say, Mom, I can't get my eyes open. She said, neither can I go back to bed. So I went to back to bed and, and tried to get my eyes open. And I went back a few minutes later. I said, Mom, I can't get my eyes open. She said something like, Peter, it's 2 a.m. You're not supposed to have your eyes open. Go back to bed. Then Mother Instinct kicked in. She came in, felt horrible. Next day, we're at the doctor. I got allergy shots, all this medication. Tell her I was 18. Then the doctors said, listen, you don't need this anymore. It's okay. And uh, while I was going to college, uh, everything 
look good until the end of my college education. We were going to go skiing in Colorado, so we made the 16-hour drive from Minneapolis to Denver, and then we were going to go to the Torchbearer Center in Estes Park, and we got to the Mile High City, and then it gets higher from there as you get towards uh, Estes Park, and what had happened was my asthma came back with revenge. I didn't recognize it, though. I just thought I had a cough, and for heaven's sakes, who's going to give up skiing at Christmas vacation for a cough? So we get up there, and I got pretty desperate. In fact, it got to the point where my fingernails turned blue and my lips turned blue. We went to the emergency room in Estes Park, and the doctor said, listen, I want you to blow into this tube. It's called a peak flow uh, you know, tube, so we're going to measure your lung capacity. So I gave it everything I got, and I went, and I moved the little ball about that far. He just shook his head, and he said, it's about time you got here, because at this altitude, you wait for an extended period of time. You could suffer brain damage because of the lack of oxygen in your brain. That's what the staff at Bodensielf, my place of employment, thinks, but he told me differently. And so he said, you'll be our guest here. So for the rest of my ski vacation, I was in the hospital in Estes Park, and since that day, I have three sprays in my, my room, I'm on a shot called Nucula, I have a nebulizer at home, and I'm thankful if I can speak for 45 minutes without taking a break. When I was in Colorado, I did something pretty biblical. I said, I love skiing. But something's wrong. I can't live this way anymore. And I repented. And I turned 180 degrees and in my poverty went to the emergency room and was saved. That's repentance. It's turning from to. It's actually something very positive. But when you're in a position like I was in Estes Park, and you're thinking, hmm, brain damage, skiing. Honestly, sometimes we need to go to the brink to repent. And that can be the greatest day in our lives and the greatest blessing that God can give to us even as a Christian. As we discover that as necessary Jesus Christ is to become a Christian, so necessary is he to be the Christian we've become. So Jesus says, be zealous and repent. And he says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If he's standing outside the door knocking, he had nothing to do with all of their so-called activity in the first place. He wasn't even a part of it. All their works, all their activity, all the stuff they were doing. You know, it's, it's interesting, Jesus was never impressed with numbers. In fact, he faced a crowd in the Gospels. He normally did one of two things. Either, number one, he avoided them, or number two, he offended them with something he said. But he was never impressed with numbers. 
The big deal was not the big deal with Jesus. And even with all of their activity, all that was going on, he said, this is making me sick. And furthermore, I have nothing to do with it. And praise God, he comes knocking. That's the thing. He comes knocking at our door. And he said, I want intimacy with you again. I want to come and be the source. Brought a picture this morning, and it was painted by a man named William Holman Hunt. There's a picture of this. The original is in Oxford. There's a second copy of it in St. Paul's Cathedral. And the title of the picture is Christ, the Light of the World. And he painted this picture on the basis of Revelation chapter 3 and verse 21. And we could spend a lot of time on this, but we won't. I just wanted to note one thing about that picture, though, and that's this. If you were able to examine it carefully, there is no doorknob on the outside where Jesus is standing. And he painted it that way because the only one who can open the door is me and you. He will not come in by force. He waits for repentance. He waits for us to come to the place where we say and admit before him and say, Lord, mine is a Christless Christianity. I'm sick of this. I'm so busy, but I'm so empty. Or we may come to the point where we have grasped and tried to get everything that this world has to offer and we end up saying with Mike Tyson, you know, money can't buy you happiness. It can only buy you time until you realize how unhappy you are. And we repent and we come bankrupt. You see, it's only the empty hand that can open the door, not the hand that's full. The empty hand opens the door. And we are never more mature in the eyes of God than when we come empty-handed and say, Lord Jesus, I need you to do this for me. I can't. Uh, Paul, yes, come on up here. Paul and his wife were sitting in front of Gabby and I last night, and they were laughing so hard at ambush and looking back at us, and we were laughing just as hard, and I thought, I want to sit with these people. Could you just grab onto that for me? Mm -hmm. Yeah, you could hold that, couldn't you? For a while, yeah. For a while, <laughs> hope so. But it's not that hot, is it? It's kind of lukewarm. Right. Yeah, great. Thank you. That's all I wanted. Thank you. Yeah, God bless you. Uh, Paul, here's the question. What did you do to make that water lukewarm? Nothing. 
nothing. You see, it's possible to do nothing and something will happen. If I'm not zealous and come to Christ on his terms and come with empty hands and say, Lord Jesus, I can't, I am desperate, I am bankrupt. If I don't want to do that, you know what's going to happen? The temperature of my life in Christ is going to adapt the temperature of my environment. And there will soon be no difference between the two. That's why Jesus says, hurry up. You open the door. You come to me. And my need for Christ may be realized within the realm of marriage, family, business. There are a myriad of things. Gabby and I know this. In fact, it seems like we're just reaching this point over and over and over. In fact, the older I get, the more I realize how much I need Jesus. I don't know if you realize this or not, but in Matthew's gospel, before Jesus ever said, go and make disciples, he said in Matthew chapter 11, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden. First you come, then you go. Ambush, I loved what you were saying last night about perhaps somebody who's come here this week to Gull Lake uh, doesn't have a clue what you got yourself into. Maybe you were dragged here by somebody. Well, I got a picture this morning. It looks like something off of Leave it to Beaver. Within a period of four years, my grandparents got a divorce, my uncle got a divorce, my aunt got a divorce, and then my parents got a divorce within four years. We came from good heathen background. It wasn't that anybody was you know, antagonistic against the Lord. It's just that Jesus was irrelevant, both sides of the family. My mom married my stepfather, who was a lovely man, loved him to death, and it was shortly thereafter that she received Christ at a Billy Graham crusade in St. Paul at the fairgrounds. It was, for both of them, their second marriage and their second time around. There were neighbors who lived on the same street as, as we did, and uh, they came to Christ at a conference center on the West Coast called Forest Home. And they started driving as a family from Minneapolis to California every summer because they loved it so much and it's very much like um, Gull Lake. And in the early 70s, he got together with some businessmen and said, why are we driving to California? We can do this in the Midwest. So he rented a piece of property. Actually, it was a college campus on Lake Geneva, Wisconsin. And uh, he started a family camp ministry called Northern Pines. Because he had seen my parents' lives fall apart. He had seen my mom as a single mom with four kids at home. 
at a time in the United States when the divorce rate is not what it's like now, and mom used to say every time I go shopping, it was like I walked into the supermarket with this big D for divorce branded into my forehead. That's, that's the woman in Cottagewood who has four kids. Marriage just fell apart. And um, this godly family invited our family to a family week, just like this week at Gull Lake. This was a Christian camp. I understood camp. I didn't understand Christian. We went to church when it was necessary, but not much more than that. And if I were to be honest with you, probably my stepbrother, uh, stepfather uh, went with his heels kind of dug in, and mom dragged him there. Wouldn't surprise me in the least if somebody's here like my stepfather at that time. Wouldn't surprise me in the least if somebody's seated here whose lives have fallen apart among those who are dearest to you. And that week, we had a great week. I was 13 years old. And uh, the thing that I began to realize, these people had a lot more than fun. They had a joy and a contentment and a peace that was infectious. And a 13-year-old kid noticed it. Lenny Carlson, who's in the front row with his bare feet lying on his back, he gave a Bible study every morning, every evening. To be honest with you, intellectually, I hadn't a clue what he was talking about, but something deep inside of me said, that's true. That's true. And on Thursday night, he stood up and just explained from his life, like I'm doing right now, that he had a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And when he said that, the living God made perfectly clear to my conscience, it's Jesus that you have found attractive. He's here, he loves you, and you need him. There's another counselor sitting next to Lenny Carlson. His name is Bill Gibson, not Mel Gibson, Bill Gibson. And on that Thursday night of that week, they said, if somebody wants to stay behind and receive Christ, you can do so. And I sat next to Bill Gibson. 13-year-old boys can be pretty brutal sometimes. We laughed at him behind his back. He brought his speedboat and it sunk one night. We thought, what kind of a guy brings a boat like that? And yet he was the one who sat next to me. And for the first time in my life, I heard these words. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. And in a very simple prayer, I gave my life to Christ, and Christ gave his life to me by his indwelling spirit. And I was born again that night. And not only did that happen, my stepfather received Christ, my brother received Christ, my sister received Christ, and her twin sister received Christ. So we understand what brokenness means, but we also understand that you don't have to stay there and that God can break the chain. 
Gabi understands that. She came to Christ in a tent meeting, and she would tell you, a tent meeting, how backward, how awful is a tent meeting? But in front of a thousand people, she went forward, and she couldn't stay in her seat. And when you tra experience tragedy six years after you stand at the altar saying I do to the man who you think he'll spend the rest of your life with, but don't. So good to have Jesus. So we come bankrupt this week and that is the currency that God loves. I need you. I need you.